0: Listening to KBOO Portland on 90.7 FM, K282BH Philomath on 104.3 FM, and
1: K220HR Hood River on 91.9 FM. KBOO Community Radio holds open meetings concerning the operations and programming of KBOO in accordance with requirements of the Communications Act of 1934 and certification requirements of the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Information about KBOO Community Radio's open meeting policy is available at our website at KBU.fm. Due to the temporary closure of in-station activity at KBOO, meetings will be conducted online via public video conferencing unless otherwise noted. A public link and phone number to attend the meetings are available on our website. The Development and Events Committee meets on the 4th Monday of the month at 4.30 p.m. Please visit our website at kboo.fm to verify if a meeting is being held.
2: KPFK Pacifica Radio in Los Angeles, this is Rising Up with Sonali and I'm your host Sonali Cole We're online at risingupwithsonali.com. In today's news headlines, more than a quarter million Americans have officially died from the coronavirus since the pandemic began. Across the country, cases of infection are increasing, just as scientists predicted they would in the winter months. States are returning to restrictions and curfews, including in New York City, where schools will once more shut down eight weeks after reopening. The state of Iowa has mandated wearing masks, and in Ohio there is now a curfew at night. Hawaii is the only state where cases remain steady. Dr. Anthony Fauci lamented the, quote, disjointed approach to curbing the virus and said that the nation needed, quote, a uniform approach, which strongly implied that President Donald Trump's leadership has failed on this front. The number of people hospitalized has doubled in the past month. Associated Press explained, quote, Overwhelmed hospitals are converting chapels, cafeterias, waiting rooms, hallways, even a parking garage into patient treatment areas. Staff members are desperately calling around to other medical centers in search of open beds. Fatigue and frustration are setting in among frontline workers. Admiral Brett Girard of the Department of Health and Human Services said, quote, I lose sleep at night over where we are in the pandemic right now. This is crunch time. This is not crying wolf. President Donald Trump's failures on the pandemic is on full display with a clear correlation showing how states with the fewest restrictions have had the worst outbreaks of the virus. The conclusion is based on a study by Oxford University researchers, one of whom told The New York Times, quote, States that have kept more controlled policies in a more consistent way, New England states, for example, have avoided a summer surge and are now having a smaller fall surge, as opposed to states that rolled them back very quickly, like Florida or Texas. Trump and his Republican Party allies have repeatedly and vociferously denounced safety precautions against the virus. Trump adviser Scott Atlas just days ago urged Michiganders to rise up against new restrictions in their state. South Dakota Governor Christy Noem, whose state has one of the worst outbreaks in the nation, has rigidly backed Trump's approach in the face of mass infections and deaths. In other news, a lawsuit against Tyson Foods Corporation alleges that managers bet money on their workers catching the virus. The lawsuit blames the company for, quote, fraudulent misrepresentations, gross negligence, and incorrigible willful and wanton disregard for workers' safety. As infections increase, retail workers who are still required to work indoors are not getting extra hazard pay for their risks. Among the businesses whose profits are booming but who stopped the hazard pay are Amazon, Walmart and Kroger. Walmart is also under fire for underpaying its employees so much that taxpayers are forced to subsidize their bottom line through federal programs. Walmart and other similar corporations are singled out in a new report by the Government Accountability Office. Senator Bernie Sanders denounced the findings, saying on Twitter, quote, "The Walton family is worth $238 billion, yet they pay wages so low. 14,541 of their workers in nine states are forced to rely on food stamps to feed their families. Outrageous! I say to the Walton family, get off welfare, pay your workers a living wage, at least $15 an hour." End of quote. And in other economic news, the Labor Department reported that 743,000 workers filed for jobless benefits last week. That's a new surge from the week before. As official state vote counts from the November 3rd election are finalized, President-elect Joe Biden looks to have won a whopping 80 million votes. That's a historic record. Conversely, outgoing President Donald Trump set his own record, winning the most votes for a losing candidate. Trump continues to refuse to concede to Biden, however, and his campaign held a bizarre press conference on Thursday morning, where his personal lawyer Rudy Giuliani came to the shocking conclusion that if you exclude Democratic votes, Trump would have won.
3: This all happened in two places in Wisconsin. Didn't happen in northern Wisconsin. Didn't happen in Republican Wisconsin. Didn't happen in neutral Wisconsin, where there are equal number of Republicans and Democrats. It happened in a place where the vote was 75, 80 percent for the Democrat. You take away any number of those, and that 20,000 lead disappears. In other words, if you count the lawful votes, Trump won Wisconsin.
2: That's Rudy Giuliani explaining that if Democratic votes were removed from state tallies, Trump would have won the election. Trump's goal has been to claim that votes for him are legal and votes for Biden are quote, illegal. The attack on the democratic rights of the nation's people by a sitting president is unprecedented. Trump's Republican allies continue to try to help him remain in power, delaying vote counting or trying to disqualify votes wherever they can, including in Wisconsin, Michigan and Pennsylvania. The New York Times reported on Thursday that in the cases of thousands of arrests at Black Lives Matter protests around the country earlier this year, prosecutors have declined to press charges. Mass protests against racist police brutality were met with more police brutality as law enforcement officers wantonly arrested thousands of people, usually for no justifiable reason. According to the Times, quote, prosecutors called the scale of both the mass arrests and mass dismissals within a few short months unrivaled, at least since the civil rights protests of the early 1960s. In the aftermath, prosecutors declined to pursue many of the cases because they concluded that the protesters were exercising their basic civil rights. Additionally, quote, there was also the recognition that law enforcement officers often use mass arrests as a technique to help clear the streets, not to confront illegal behavior, end of quote. There was no mention of whether police would be held accountable for violating people's First Amendment rights. Although this is almost always the justification given for why police fail to intervene when armed right-wing activists rally in public. Indigenous activists and environmentalists plan to rally in front of the Democratic National Committee headquarters in Washington, D.C. on Thursday. Their goal is to ensure that Biden keeps his climate promises and they have denounced his appointments of fossil fuel industry-friendly figures like Representative Cedric Richmond and former Energy Secretary Ernest Moniz. Secretary of State and Trump loyalist Mike Pompeo visited the occupied West Bank this week, becoming the senior most U.S. government official to set foot in an illegal Israeli settlement. Among Pompeo's declarations was that the Palestinian-led Boycott, Divestment and Sanctions Movement, or BDS, would now be considered anti-Semitic by the US. And that illegal Israeli settlement-made goods exported to the US would be labeled made in Israel. Israel's virulently right-wing Prime Minister, Benjamin Netanyahu, lauded the statements as, quote, simply wonderful. A growing number of Americans, including Jewish Americans, recognize Israel's occupation as illegal and immoral. And finally, senators from both parties have blocked a secret Trump administration deal to sell US-made weapons to the United Arab Emirates. The massive $23 billion weapons deal was the US's gift to the UAE in exchange for the Gulf Arab state, officially recognizing the state of Israel in a deal that Trump heavily touted earlier this year. Now, Senators Bob Menendez, Chris Murphy, and Rand Paul have introduced four bills to block the sale the UAE, along with U.S. ally Saudi Arabia, have waged a relentless, years-long war, alongside the U.S. against the poverty-stricken nation of Yemen. And that does it for our news headlines. We'll be back with the rest of the show after the break. KPFK Pacifica Radio, this is Rising Up with Sonali and I'm your host Sonali Kolhatkar. You can watch this program on Free Speech TV and listen to it on Pacifica radio stations and affiliates nationwide. When Joe Biden was running for president, he promised he would build back better after taking the reins from Trump. On the issue of climate change in particular, he promised to listen to the scientists and reduce emissions dramatically in just a few years. But his wavering position on the fracking industry was an indication that the centrist liberal Democrat would likely remain beholden to corporate interests, unless forced to do otherwise. Already, Biden has alarmed climate activists with his picks of fossil fuel friendly representative Cedric Richmond, former energy secretary Ernest Moniz and former DuPont consultant Michael McCabe to key positions on the environment. Young people and organizations like the Sunrise Movement vow to not let him off the hook. Here is one youth demanding that he fulfill his climate promises.
3: Biden, these are letters from people, the young people that got you in office. We need you to be brave right now for our futures, for our generation, because we're counting on you.
2: Climate activists, indigenous leaders and even progressive members of Congress rallied outside the Democratic National Committee headquarters in Washington, D.C. on Thursday, demanding that Biden be brave. My guest is Matt Renner. He's the executive director of the Climate Mobilization and managing director of Climate Mobilization Project. Welcome to the program, Matt.
0: Hello, Sonali. Thanks for having me.
2: Thanks so much for joining us. First, of course, it's uh, important to frame what Biden will do with what Trump has done. There's been tremendous amount of damage over the past four years Trump came in promising deregulation and he pretty much delivered that not just on issues of uh, environmental regulations but on those that in particular have an impact on climate change how would you summarize the damage that Trump has done over four years some say it might be the worst aspect of his legacy and you know that's compared to quarter million people dead of the coronavirus
0: Yes, it's been an absolute slaughter, um, and the long-term damage is uh, significant. I, I do think that the the way they've taken a wrecking ball to even the inadequate uh, regulations and protections that were in place uh, on climate and on pollution in general has been um, astounding, frankly. Uh, just like everything else, it's been an unprecedented and uh, totally uh, a boundless assault on uh, the administrative state and the. Uh, the regulations that literally save lives. So this is another example of where he's putting our future at stake and and killing people.
2: So some of the regulations that had been put into place, hard won by environmentalists over years, you know, via the Obama administration included things like uh, basic uh regulation of coal power plants and also of vehicle emissions standards and and even some state level progress that was made um that trump through aggressive federal action undid right i mean he seems to have effectively used the interior department the environmental protection agency every lever available to him in the federal government to ensure that fossil fuel companies remain profitable at our expense. Would you say that's accurate?
0: It's amazing, yeah. It, it goes beyond uh, the, what the fossil fuel industry even wants in some ways. This has been an awe out assault on uh, protections in general. And they've been trying to go after some of the key uh, kind of linchpins of environmental protection, um, including the California Clean Air Standard that has been an industry-defining regulation. Luckily, they were unable to defeat that. And uh, hopefully the Biden administration will be able to simply drop their uh, opposition to California having their own uh, energy standards on, on car emissions. But yes, the, the Trump assault, it, it, it literally went further than even some fossil fuel industry uh, advocates wanted, which is just shows you how, how personal and focused this has been by a few uh, extremists is the only word for them. Uh, that got positions of power and used them to just decimate all, right, all protections uh, for the environment. And, you know, I would say this, the, the heartlessness of the assault is such that it, it just shows that we're, we're actually in a battle for the survival of our species. And this is, this is uh, what I would, would say is ground zero for that battle.
2: And it seems as though it's, it was ideological because if you know if some of these issues and, and I think you were referring uh, one of them was the vehicle emission standards that even um, car industry uh, representatives were saying vehicle uh, manuf- auto manufacturers were saying that they didn't really want to go back to the gas guzzling days and the exhaust spewing days of the past. It seems that it was this sort of ideological determination to. In you know to have fossil fuels reign supreme, um, Trump also filled his cabinet with representatives from the fossil fuel industry. Right? I mean uh, Exxon, Mobil, Chevron—all of these major corporations that already get tax subsidies for uh, extracting fossil fuels were represented in a government that claimed to drain, to want to drain the swamp. Right?
0: Yeah, again, it's just unbelievable um, how hypocritical that rhetoric was when this was just basically handing over uh, the power to industry and ideological stalwarts who are focused on basically doing harm. Um, What I would say about that specifically is the fossil fuel money that comes out of uh, big oil and big natural gas or methane is really one of the main organizing principles of the Republican Party and has been for a long time. Uh, you see that with a, you know almost a third of their uh, campaign contributions coming from industry-connected individuals and companies. Uh, why I think that's so important is that this shows the battle lines and how clear they are that this issue, even though it's really intentionally kept out of the front page of the media, it's not something that f- people focus on when they think of the Supreme Court. This is the organizing principle of a huge part of the uh, GOP base. Uh, and I don't think it's going away. I think this is a long-term strategy to continue to uh, achieve power by any means necessary by them. And we have to be very clear-eyed uh, inside the, the Democratic Party as they take over. They need to be very focused on um, this exact issue and not, not bending to the will of the industry and definitely not bringing people into the cabinet who have deep ties to the industry.
2: Let's talk about that. Biden came into office uh, in part, at least, due to the mobilization of young voters, many for many of whom climate is the issue, unsurprisingly and justifiably so. He came in making very um, strong promises on the issue of the climate in terms of emissions. But during the debates, he was sort of caught on the uh, matter of fracking because, of course, it was politically or. he made the political calculation that it wouldn't be good to say that he was against all fracking, perhaps because he thought he would lose the state of Pennsylvania. But that should have been an indication for skepticism, right? Because it was the Obama-Biden administration that oversaw the biggest expansion of fracking, the biggest expansion of domestic oil and gas production in the United States in history through fracking.
0: Yeah, it's it's shocking because it's something that Obama still uh president obama still claims credit for um, he boasts about it yeah it's uh, you know when we see the actual damage coming from the oil and gas industry and fracking is a, a kind of shorthand for the extraction of methane you know this the leaks alone and the amount of methane that's released raw into the atmosphere has been devastating for climate change uh, it's one of the biggest accelerants right now is these leaks from methane drilling sites You know, I I think the bottom line is um, the reason Biden boxed himself in on this issue was because the fossil fuel industry and the right and the complicit media have done a terrible job or a tremendous job in their eyes of keeping the narrative focused on this idea that fossil fuel industry provides so many jobs. And you know, there are many important and high-paying high union jobs in the fossil fuel industry, and we have to figure out how to transition folks so that those, uh, those, life, those lives and livelihoods don't go away in the new economy. But the potential for the clean energy economy is just tremendous compared to uh, the fossil fuel industry. And if there's a real commitment, and if they can actually deliver, this will be a, a, a generational shift to many more jobs. And if those jobs can actually come with protections, and if we can have workers' rights built into the foundation of any plan, then we will see an unbelievable growth in in good clean energy jobs. Um, And and hopefully that's where the Biden administration will focus.
2: Now let's talk about what he has already done. Um, People have been quite alarmed by the fact that Uh, Biden chose of all people to be a liaison to the climate movement, Representative Cedric Richmond. Cedric Richmond is somebody who is seen as deeply connected to the oil and gas industry. Can you tell me why this should alarm people?
0: Yeah, I think that I'm with the Sunrise Movement on this one, but this was a betrayal. Um, You know, there's a reason why Sunrise and uh, the political... uh, the very political campaigns of young people have been so focused on getting fossil fuel money out of politics right it's because if you take money from industry no matter you know no matter who you are they will then be able to call you on the phone um, and they will have your ear and uh, representative Richmond is an example of someone who's represented a district that's been totally polluted and it's actually I, I believe it's called uh, cancer uh, cancer alley uh, the, the reason it's called that is because these industries have been causing decimation to communities, many of which uh, frontline communities tend to be black, brown, and indigenous um, for decades, and since their founding. Uh, these sacrifice zones are represented by people who play closely with, with the industry, and that's just not uh, acceptable if we're going to actually have a serious plan to push back and uh, build a new economy.
2: There's also Obama's Energy Secretary, Ernest Moniz, who's being considered for a cabinet spot. Uh, I imagine that this may go back to what we were talking about earlier with the fracking industry.
0: Yeah, Moniz is a particularly important uh, person to prevent from getting in key positions. I I think that the issue is really that he's been an advocate Not just for gas, but specifically against a renewable future, Uh, he's been on, you know, as with his nuclear uh, uh, expertise, advocating for this idea that somehow variable renewables can't form the basis of an energy system, and it's just not true. He's out of touch with the latest science, and you know, if he if he if he's actually in these meetings, uh, claiming that you need, you know, hundreds of thousands of of megawatts of baseload power, all he's doing is showing for the nuclear industry and saying that, you know, casting doubt on renewables. Now we're past that and his day is over. And, you know, there's some people who I think, you know, potentially could come back into the administration, even if they held positions in the past that were problematic, but he hasn't repented and actually looked at the recent findings of the, of the scientific community and the, and the engineers who are actually making the renewable energy future a reality in places like California, but also across the country.
2: And then famed environmental activist Erin Brockovich on Thursday wrote a piece in The Guardian, Dear Joe Biden, Are You Kidding Me, is what it was entitled. And there she pointed out that uh, Biden is considering Michael McCabe, who was um, former Deputy Environmental Protection Agency Administrator and who then went on to work, you know, as part of the sort of standard Washington, D.C. revolving door, went on to work as a consultant for DuPont Energy, and now Joe Biden is considering him. Uh, and, of course, the Environmental Protection Agency under the Obama administration rightly became a, an avenue by which uh, climate uh, controls could be put into place in terms of viewing emissions as pollutants uh here again so this would be a third person who has deep ties to the very industries they're supposed to regulate being tapped to these federal agencies that's <laughs> these federal regulatory agencies what is biden doing
0: yeah i'm i'm, I'm mystified by this one i think You know the the EPA is going to be the critical agency for a lot of the re-regulation that's needed Uh, and you need someone in there who's a fighter on the right side Um, what we don't need is somebody who's who's focused on (laughs) their former clients and making sure that their bottom line stay intact what we really need to do is clean up these communities across the country Uh, you know the EPA's mandate is is massive and if you're not focused on a kind of all of government approach that which of which the EPA is going to be one of the centerpieces uh to address climate change it's just going to slow everything down to a point where it's actually suicidal i mean we're, we're talking about our last chance here to get our our house in order on climate and try and uh, launch a mobilization to save uh, life on earth and this kind of pick uh, would be detrimental to that we don't have four years to waste with uh, industry shills
2: I mean, is it a matter of Biden having had many years in, of holding various offices in Washington D.C., having all these links to industry and government insiders that he is now sort of handing out positions because he feels that he, you know, owes them allegiance? He's he's in a position where he has, you know, he's coming to the White House as an insider. Uh, not the outsider that Trump said he was. And of course, Trump ended up becoming even more of an insider. But why do you think Biden is doing this? Is this just um, business as usual, you know, the the, the boys network, the, the, the kind of um, cozy relationship that people like Biden take for granted between government and industry?
0: I think it's points to a deep problem inside the democratic party and it's one that i think is evident in many different places but is showing up here which is that they haven't really drawn a line on what they stand for and who they stand with and It's one of the reasons why trump was able to uh, you know outmaneuver them in 2016 and almost did it again in this past election the, the bottom line for me is we need to really we need leadership on this issue we don't need somebody who's trying to find compromises and and solutions that bring everyone along. It's just, it's too late for that. And we've seen that, that negotiating is not in good faith uh, with, with most of the uh, GOP on anything. So Biden's experience, you know, hopefully will lead him to at least understand how to uh, select good people. Uh, these picks you've, you've highlighted are concerning around that. Uh, but what I would say is that this is going to be a definitional presidency for what the future of the democratic party holds i don't think that young people i know myself i am not i'm not going to stand with this party in any way unless they actually live up to the rhetoric that they used to uh, achieve some sort of uh, uh, loyalty or you know get the votes of, of young people uh, across the country this is their last chance um, and this is an issue that you know is incredibly close to my heart and the hearts of many young people. We, we need our future back. And right now, uh, we're, we're not interested in our future being decided uh, by people who have been uh, insiders in the system that's actually created this nightmare that we're just beginning to see uh, uh, the, the uh, its enormity of, right? This has to end. And that cozy relationship will end uh, either through an enormous failure uh, to achieve it, progress on climate or uh, by leadership inside uh, this administration, hopefully by Biden himself, potentially with Senator or Vice President Harris, this, this could become uh, a transformative administration if they actually reject uh, this kind of influence peddling, the, uh, the, the soft and quiet work of the Washington uh, D.C. industrial complex.
2: I mean, he. There are so many people that uh, he could tap to be part of his transition team. Um, are there any people that you wish he would pick? I mean, you know, strong proponents of the Green New Deal. Obviously, there are members of Congress, uh, the House and the Senate, like AOC and even Senator Ed Markey, the two co-sponsors of the Green New Deal. But they are needed. They are already in the place where they could do the most. Uh, have the most impact, uh, but there are, you know, there's there's folks like Bill McKibben, the head of 350.org, and, and so many other, li- you know, lifelong environmental activists, or Varshini Prakash, the head of the Sunrise Movement, who could be at least tapped to be on some sort of advisory board. Um, do you have any sense that Biden is moving in that direction?
0: Um, I think there are some signs that some... Uh- there, there's some opening, at least. Um, the, the bottom line to me is that we, we signed on to the climate mandate, which is a slate of, of cabinet picks from put forward by the Sunrise Movement and Justice Democrats. Uh, the big ones that I think I'm looking at and very hopeful for is Representative Deb, Deb Holland Holland from uh, New Mexico.
2: Right, as Interior uh, our, Secretary, she's being yeah. potentially viewed as right.
0: She'd be incredible at uh, the Secretary of Interior. She would also um, be the
2: very first Indigenous person to hold a position that has the more, most power in the federal government over Indigenous lands.
0: Absolutely, and, and you know we're also going to have to talk about economic policy when we talk about climate. Um, There's some really great picks for the Economic Advisors Council, and uh, you know folks like Stephanie Kelton and Derek Hamilton, uh, who understand how finance actually could come to come to benefit. This transition and and be used as as a, a tool to actually achieve climate justice as opposed to uh, just a privatized way to extract uh, value from workers and from the working class. You know, and I would love to see uh, Senator Bernie Sanders in a uh, Secretary of Labor. Uh, we endorsed him in the primaries um, because his vision on climate is really clear. He he knows this in his bones, and his plan was sufficient. Uh, you know, Sanders has been
2: talking about the climate for. Decades, I believe there was a video from the 1980s uh, showing him talking about climate change as an
0: important issue. Exactly. I mean, he, he gets it. And that's why he went so big in his climate platform. Mm. Um, and then, you know, lastly, it's really important to connect any climate action to justice and to frontline communities. Uh, uh, Mustafa Santiago Ali is one of the people put forward as EPA, administra- EPA administrator, who's an incredible climate justice uh, advocate, as well as Kevin DeLeon, who comes from my state of California and has been fighting for real climate justice uh, on the ground here in one of the most important states in the country. So I, I think there's possibilities. Um, we're going to keep pushing uh, on our end, and I know that climate activists and the youth climate movement isn't going to stop. Uh, the bottom line to me is that you know I think they're thinking about who can get confirmed by Republican Senate, uh, which is just classic Democratic Party behavior of, you know, asking the Republicans for permission to have power. Which is Um,
2: the opposite of what Republicans do. I mean, they basically put out their most outrageous nominees and dare the Democrats to vote for them. And usually the Democrats end up doing so because they don't have the backbone to stand up to them. And it's just... It's just really disheartening to see that happening over and over again. Are you heartened by the fact that uh, on Thursday, you know, b- before Biden has even taken office, we're seeing people mobilize in Washington DC. You know, Obviously, they couldn't mobilize or they chose not to mobilize in front of the White House because Biden isn't there yet. So they mobilized in front of the Democratic National Committee's headquarters in Washington DC, um, members of the squad, members of the Sunrise Movement, uh, members of the Indigenous Environmental Network. Uh, with big signs saying Biden be brave. And do you think that they can send a strong enough sign to Biden? You know, right at this moment when he is picking the members of his cabinet, when he's making those decisions, put him on notice.
0: Absolutely, yeah. Uh, Varshini Prakash and the whole Sunrise Movement know exactly what they're doing. And they've been incredibly effective. If you remember 2018, the occupation of Nancy Pelosi's office by, with uh, uh, Sunrise activists where uh, AOC came to speak and really put this issue on the map in a new way. It was a a level of urgency that's being brought to this fight that is uh, exactly on time. Um, We don't have any time to waste. So the aggressive tactics of young people uh, taking to the streets and taking to the offices uh, of these uh, people who actually can make decisions uh, should give them strength, actually, right? I mean, in a democracy, when you have people showing up with this level of passion, if you were a representative who actually cared about their interests, you would welcome them. So I hope that the Democratic Party can see that the future of the party is at stake and that the power lies with the people and the movement and that standing in the way of that, you know, even if it means taking political risks that end up costing them, it's still worth taking a position and fighting because they have to keep their base first and be responsive to their base first if they want to actually survive and, and keep power.
2: And it's an amazing uh, thing to see climate being a unifying issue. It is uh, unifying across the country. Majority of Americans, you know, we've had a terrible hurricane season, wildfires earlier this year. Americans know and see the impact of the climate on their lives. It is even bipartisan. There are a majority, not as big a majority as Democrats, but a majority of Republicans see the climate as a big issue, want it to be changed. And you can use this issue to address climate change, economic justice, racial justice all together through things like the Green New Deal. It should be a no-brainer for the Democratic Party. Let's see what happens. Matt, give out a website for your organization where people can find out more about the work you do.
0: Yeah, folks wanna come find out about the climate mobilization, come to our website and uh, sign up for our email list. You can find resources for starting your own climate emergency declaration campaign where you live. Uh, The URL is theclimatemobilization.org.
2: Matt, I want to thank you so much for joining us today.
0: My pleasure, pleasure, Sonali. Thank you.
2: My guest has been Matt Renner, Executive Director of the Climate Mobilization, Managing Director of Climate Mobilization Project. We've been discussing President-elect Joe Biden, and if he is up to the task of leading the nation out of climate catastrophe. I'm Sonali Kolhatkar. We're online at risingupatsonali.com, where you can sign up for our daily newsletter. Find our audio podcast on iTunes and Spotify. KPFK Pacifica Radio, this is Rising Up with Sonali and I'm your host Sonali Kolhatkar. You can watch this program on Free Speech TV and listen to it on Pacifica radio stations and affiliates nationwide. Under cover of the presidential race, Donald Trump's administration has been rapidly and quietly deporting asylum seekers from Cameroon without following the proper procedures. Plain loads of deportees have been expelled to a war-torn nation where many fear they will face death. Over the course of months, Cameroonian asylum seekers being held in detention centers in the U.S. have gone on hunger strike to protest their conditions. Senator Chris Van Hollen has written to Homeland Security Secretary Chad Wolf urging him to stop the deportations. And Representative Karen Bass has introduced a bill to do the same. Immigrant and refugee organizations have urged the US to extend temporary protected status to asylum seekers from Cameroon. But all the efforts so far have been in vain. My guest is Sylvie Bello, founder of the Cameroon American Council. Welcome to the program, Sylvie.
3: Hi, thank you, Sonali. Bonjour, salam. hi everyone.
2: Thanks so much for joining us. So first tell us um, about the plight of asylum seekers from Cameroon. Uh, They've been held in terrible conditions and now many of them have simply, I mean, you could say have been disappeared by the US. They've just been dumped into Cameroon without following proper procedures. What should we know about what was happened, what was done to them?
3: No, um, it's been, crazy times, Uh, everyone has failed them, including us as activists who failed them uh, because uh, they are facing detention, they're facing deportation, and quite frankly, death. That's exactly why they fled. They fled five armed conflicts in Cameroon, armed conflicts in Ali that were caused by um, America's um, foreign policy abroad, right? The heavy handedness in militarization um, in present day, but also, um, you know, in this moment of racial reckoning, um, there is also colonization and post-colonization and all the way to 400 years when our ancestors um, were stolen from the shores of Bimbia Cameroon and sold to the Americas. And then when these men and women flee in these conflicts, essentially caused by American foreign policy abroad, they get to Ecuador, they cross eight countries in Central um, and, and, and South America, get to Mexico in North America, then now get to the U.S. The U.S. refuses right, to use all of its international treaties. I mean, the United Nations isn't the United States, right? You would think that all of these treaties, you know, will be utilized and and, and, and put in, you know, in their favors um, for asylum, knowing that Cameroon is experiencing these five armed conflicts. But no, Sonali, they get there, they're put in detention, and like generations um, before them, we have these black men and black women in cages. Um, and who are now being forced um, to uh, in deportation because the U.S. government is retaliating against them.
2: So, uh, and I want to get to the issue of retaliation. So how, what are the numbers we're looking at? I understand that there were some 200 people um, that were moved to a detention center in Texas um, before uh, some dozens were taken to the airport. Do we have a sense of the numbers? I mean, we know that the U.S. government under Trump has been extremely secretive about how it handles refugees, asylum seekers, and immigrants. Um, What do we know about the Cameroonian asylum seekers that have actually been deported so far? So throughout, um, you know, the... So, Cameroon has Boko Haram
3: uh, terrorist groups in the north of Cameroon coming out of Nigeria. We have um, Seleka and anti Bakala terrorist groups coming out of Central African Republic, um, the, you know, the country. And then within Cameroon, we do have the Anglophone cessationist movement. And we also have some intertribal, intercultural, interreligious crisis, as well as a post electoral crisis. So, that makes up the five armed conflicts. When they um come to the to, to the US, these are men and women who've already fought. You know, a dictatorship, and so within the United States, within the detention centers, they're already known as troublemakers. So what happens is that um, they went on a hunger strike, which you uh, alluded to earlier. They went on um, uh, different forms of protest. 140 Cameroonian women protested in Texas. Uh, 40 um, protests. Pro- 40 men protested in um, uh, Pine Perry, Louisiana, and and so. The recent deportations um, have been mass deportations. But Sonali, they've been um, in the last 10 years, you know, deportations to Cameroon, um, even within the pandemic. Um, you know, we had uh, a Freedom of Information Act report that came out that said between March and um, between March of 2020 and um, um, June, July of 2020, um, Cameroonians were deported during the pandemic when all of the borders were supposedly closed, right? Um, Yes. And then so, the same thing um,
2: happened during and after the election crisis, uh, you know, the, the, the election here in the United States, when the results were not known for many days, all news outlets were focused on that. It seems as though the, the Trump administration, the Homeland Security Department, was almost rushing to get uh, these, and there many of them, mostly men, out of the country back into Cameroon. And it was considered so dangerous, I understand, that these were being referred to as death planes.
3: Absolutely, absolutely. So that's what this particular
2: administration
3: is building off of four hundred years of anti blackness and anti Africanness within the immigration. Um, just as we've seen the Trump administration being bracing in its racism, bracing in um and, and just overt in its um and emboldened in its um racist ways in every single policy right Be it healthcare, just not caring about us you know uh you know half a million americans dying in covid so just as they've been so overt in their um you know in, in their racism in their anti-blackness and just not caring for for people in general and putting people over profit, that's exactly what they did with these Cameroonians. So within the pandemic, when folks were like focused on that, they were pushing them out. Within um, the elections, while folks were, you know, recounting and you know looking at, you know, how how are we going to maintain this democracy? They were out there pushing these men and women who were protesters. And yes, they took them from different parts of the South and Sanelli. That just tells you how um, the American um, immigration system is, right? Because if you're incarcerated, and because that's basically what it is, right? They put asylum seekers right in detention prison, is right? just a, a
2: pretty word for incarceration, yeah
3: that's basically what it is it's not more no less they're in chains right if you saw some of the videos that came out of perryland um, which is outside of um, dallas texas right in the dallas texas metro they were put in chains um you know they even when they were in the plane they were in chains many of them um like you said it was a death trap death plane when many of them when they got to the cameroon the cameroon government took them not to the hospital right not to a healthcare center no they took them from there to a police station to another jail you know to to um uh police barracks or so the military barracks. that's where they took them to to be checked you know because they wanted to make sure that none of them were criminals right mm-hmm. um because that's like the most important thing you know when humans were chained in you know in a you know, 14, 16 hour trip. Um, and yes, this particular government has used these moments, right? Has used this times so when America is focused on something else, you know, that's critical and important to,
2: you know, just be um inhumane to people. So uh, um, tell me kind of tell me about uh the, the you mentioned earlier retaliation. Um if, did the United States skip over the steps needed they illegally deport these men because when you seek asylum in the US there are laws that protect you there are procedures that have to be followed in order to determine whether you are granted asylum or denied asylum did the US properly go through these steps and if they didn't was it in retaliation for the hunger strikes that these uh, immigrant these uh, re- asylum seekers who were being seen as troublemakers engaged in
3: absolutely this was retaliation and how do we know this um as you mentioned the united states follows you know all kinds of international treaties on how to treat asylum um, seekers and how to treat refugees these men and women um, many of them had their um cases still open right um some of them had been denied asylum but were filing appeals right some of them were in appeals some of them had um Basically, open cases within um, the Inspector General of Homeland Security. So, for instance, um, there were eight men at Adams County in Mississippi where these men were beaten at, bo- at gunpoint, were um, you know forced to sign asylum papers, forced to sign travel documents, and they were like, "No, we don't. We are scared of going back. We have our cases open." And be- and so, pretty much, you know, together with our friends at SPLC. Freedom, um, freedom for immigrants, uh, um, Haitian Bridge Alliance, and many other organizations. We came together and we filed a complaint. So that complaint was still open when they deported some of the men and women um, within that. So ICE went through all this trouble just to send out, you know, Cameroonians on a private, um, you know, uh, uh, plane um, out of Maryland because. These were men and women who were being invested, who were part of a lawsuit to investigate, um, you know, civil wow. rights within uh, ICE. They were part of the lawsuit to investigate um, opening up of bodies, you know, uh, mutilating bodies, you know. Stealing, because that's what happens with the with the women at, at Irwin Detention Center in Georgia, where Exhibit A was a Cameroonian, Pauline, whom we uh, um, is our sister. You're referring to we the
2: were- the women who found that they had medical procedures being done on them without their knowledge. Some even being given hysterectomies, meaning they can't have children. So there was a Cameroonian among those. Um, I believe it was largely Central American women, and and then some uh, African uh, immigrants. There were several African women. There were so, Um, when, and so this,
3: you know, so that particular case was very interesting because when we think of immigration, we usually would think of um, maybe Mexicans, maybe extended to um, South and Central Americans. But well, folks are not actively thinking about black migrants, right? Folks are not actively thinking about African migrants. When in fact, right, Um, America, as we know today, was as a result of forced involuntary migration from Africa, which means every single policy in immigration was to keep those structures in place, um, to keep the white supremacy in place, right? Right now, we're talking about an African ban, um, which is uh, part of the the, the travel ban from Trump um, in Muslim-majority countries, right? But the first African Came banned was when my ancestors were um, stolen from the shores of India in Cameroon and sold to the Americas. With that came quarters, right? With that, America made sure that no other person out of Africa could come to America as a migrant. So um, so let me ask you
2: specifically, Sylvie, if you can address whether their asylum uh, applications were improperly, you know, denied or, or just even ignored. Absolutely. Mm -hmm.
3: Absolutely. So they didn't go, the government didn't go
2: through. And we know that uh, already the Trump administration has installed hardline conservative anti-immigrant judges to be the immigrant, uh, immigration judges uh, that have, you know, summarily up and down denied asylum applications at a, an unprecedented rate over these past four years.
3: Absolutely. So
2: for instance, the 40 men in Pine Perry, the judge there is
3: George Larragui. Okay, George Laragie, um is known as a racist judge. Um, several organizations, including the Cameron American Council, have filed um, grievances, right, um, in the way he treats Cameroonians and the way he treats Cubans, right? Mm-hmm. SVLC, for instance, you know, put out an entire report on, um, you know, that as many Cameroonians as Cubans, you know, file for asylum. Yet. You know, in addition to the blatant, um, uh, you know, improper um, and miscarriage of justice that happens in these immigration just uh, immigration courts, because immigration justices and 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 judges come from the executive branch, right, as opposed to the separation. Of of, of of levels, uh, the separation of power that we know it, you know, immigration judges are appointed by the executive branch. So what are you going to do? Not go after what ICE is doing? So basically the immigration judge and the ICE, uh, um, you know, the, 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 the lawyer for the government are working for the same people, right? Against, you know, poor um, um, immigrants. So, so the- of course there will be um, uh, um, faulty and false um, and, and and quite frankly, um, you know, results that come out because of profit, because this particular administration. Let, is me, ask all you, about so, let me ask you. Let me
2: ask you, Sylvie, about TPS, Temporary Protected Status, is a uh, an a, a, a status that some people from some countries uh, are in are enabled, you know, can use in order to remain in the country if they come from nations that are struggling with war and violence. There's been TPS protection for people from various countries, including Haiti. Is there a TPS program for Cameroon? If not, why not? And is that something you're calling for?
3: Yes, yes. So with the five armed conflicts in Cameroon, um, with the mass deportation, we are calling for um, uh, the the Cameroon government, actually, and unfortunately, is part of this because with TPS for Haiti for instance you know the Haitian government had to tell the State Department hey can you hold off on deportation to Haiti while we work on the earthquake right with TPS we actually work on TPS for um, the Ebola affected countries you know Sierra Leone uh, Guinea and um, and Liberia you know the, the the government of those countries had to tell American government hey can you hold off on deporting folks into Liberia um, and Guinea and, and Sierra Leone, while we work on this Ebola crisis that's happening. And same thing for for many of the uh, South Sudan had a civil war, Cameroon has a pandemic, has a civil uh, has a civil war, and a cessation movement, and five armed conflicts. Right? You would think that the Cameroon government will say the same thing while we are focused on you know uh, uh, you know. reconciliation, while we're focused on ending the war, would you do this? But the Cameroon government um, just recently acknowledged that there was even crisis in Cameroon, right? So we are hopeful because we've been asking uh, the State Department for TPS for the last four years since the war, Um, went haywire four years ago in 2016. We'll be acting for TPS. But the State Department kept saying, well, the Cameroon government keeps saying that there's nothing happening in Cameroon. Just a little internal squabble, just a little internal, you know, misunderstanding. But last year, the Cameroon government hosted a national dialogue specifically because of the crisis. So that's how we are, um, you know, we are hopeful that now that the Cameroon government um, hosted this national dialogue, essentially you know, going, saying that there is crisis. Now that there is this mass deportation happening, one of the ways, it's not the only way, one of the ways will be to get TPS. Um, uh, other ways will will, will be to, um, you know, provide, you know, either TPS or DED. And yes, we've had um, over 80 uh, organizations um, sign our petition. And tomorrow, well, this week, we will be having um, rallies around the country to get more and more people involved. We would love and we appreciate your platform because we are actually looking to reach um, our neighbors, right? A lot of Cameroonians tend to be nurses. They tend to be um, you know, working in this pandemic across the country, yet their friends, their family members are in detention well, um, and in the
2: US. Finally, Sylvie, let me ask you, do you know of those who have been deported? Does anybody know what has happened to them? Is anybody keeping track of these people who were deported, who feared they were being sent to their deaths?
3: So their families obviously are worried. In the diaspora, the Cameroonians across um, uh, the, the U.S. Are, are very worried. Some have not seen their um, family members. Um, some uh, you know, were at the airport and took pictures of with their family members. Like they had other family members come to the airport to take pictures. But again, the Cameroon government took them to another location outside of the Douala International Airport. And while they were there, they were kept for two, three days. Some who were deemed to be, um, you know, some who were deemed to be, you know, much more of a troublemaker. I don't know how they came about that, mm-hmm. but some who were deemed to be very much against the Cameroon government were held for longer terms. Um, and and there are some people who um, finally came out have been in hiding. Um, others have still not been seen since they were taken by the Cameroon government. Um, and and others um, who were released where their, their paperwork were taken away from them. So they have no IDs. They have, because there are some group of, uh, because we have a strong diaspora, right? So there were some groups, of the tribal groups who were saying, hey, we want to send them some money, but we, they cannot cash the money, right? With, uh, with uh, Western Union or MoneyGram because they have no IDs. Right. So the Cameroon government took all the paperwork that they had with them. They have no way of identifying themselves. And many of them are in hiding. And that's why we encourage, um, you know, more media attention on this. We're so, you know, grateful to be on your platform and really asking, you know, uh, um, you know, friends, allies out there that, you know, if they know of organizations that work internationally to help us investigate this, because because we just do not have the resources, right, in in, um, in, in 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 doing this, and that's why we're calling members of Congress. We're calling the Cameroon, um, the, the the American Embassy in Cameroon. Um, we we sent out um, emails to um, Ambassador Brownback, who is the ambassador for international religious freedom. Um, you know, asking him that as an as a roving international um, ambassador, um, you know, if he could look into what faith organizations can do in Cameroon um, to protect these uh, men and women as as some kind of like a sanctuary, because a lot of them have ran, they cannot go to their homes because they know exactly where they're gonna track them. And so we were just thinking, hey, would would the churches, like for instance, you know, just this week, the American um, uh, uh, Presbyterian Church in America hosted a webinar on Cameroonian migrants, right? We're hoping that PCUSA, whose highest um, clergy is a black man, you know, they call the they call him the stated clerk, would ask, you know, um, the Presbyterian Church in Cameroon to provide sanctuary, right? We're hoping that the American Baptist, you know, uh, conference will look into Baptist uh, churches and, you know, to provide some kind of sanctuary. We are we're we're calling on folks to support us as can
2: we you, can you give out support- a, a website, Sylvie, where people can find this information or any social media handles.
3: Absolutely. So we're at Camamere Council, C-A-M-A-M-E-C-O-U-N-C-I-L, Camamere. If you just put hashtag um, free Cameroonians and hashtag Cameroon
2: TPS, which is for temporary protected status. That's uh, And we'll post links to those from our website later today. Sylvie, I want to thank you so much for joining us today. Really appreciate your time and shedding light on this really important issue.
3: Thank you. And please, you know, remember, you know, immigration is a black issue. And we are so grateful that more and more people through this platform will learn more about Cameroonian, the the
2: Cameroonian, the resistance of Cameroonian migrants. Thank you so much, Sylvie. Thank you. My guest has been Sylvie Bello, founder of the Cameroon American Council. I'm Sonali Kohatkar. We're online at at risingupatsonali.com, where you can sign up for our daily newsletter. Also follow us on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram at RU with Sonali.
3: Rising Up with Sonali is hosted, written, and executive produced by Sonali Kohatka. Anna Buss is the producer, technical director, and web and social media supervisor. Our theme music is by Grammy award-winning band, Up. Like us on Facebook.com slash RU with Sonali. That's the letters RU with Sonali. And follow us on Twitter.com slash RU with Sonali. Our website is risingupwithsonali.com where you can find all our programs archived and where you can get direct access to all our video and
0: audio files. listening to kboo portland 90.7 fm and KBO.fm online
1: today's another
3: big gift day for willamette week's gift guide when you donate ten dollars or more to kboo or any of the 174 participating organizations on gift guide today you'll be eligible to win a Columbia River Gorge getaway package. The package includes an overnight stay at Skamania Lodge in the Gorge with breakfast for two and a few goodies from the gift shop. Remember, KBU has one to one match for all new and increasing donations too. So donate to KBU on Gift Guide today by going to kbu.fm slash Woohoo!